HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45. Call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Joined in the studio with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez. How you doing? Good. Jack, the headphones are really loud. Well, maybe yeah. just yours. Maybe oh, actually, I don't know. I think mine are too, but oh, okay. normally I don't complain. I, I just, could do it from I just, here. Really I just suck loud. it up. I just suck Ooh, it up. Wow. Just in their hand. I wonder they, who they was here before you. Someone. Yeah. Someone who's deep. Is that better, guys? Yeah. So listen, uh, Jack, you, uh, well, you know, not from Brooklyn anymore, but you still, you know the Bushwick news, right? So uh, I'm, I just want to. Oh, the chickens? Yeah. So here's yeah. the thing. I want you guys to know Heritage, Heritage uh, Meats, whose offices are right here in Bushwick over on Siegel Street, not involved with the largest cockfighting ring in New York history that was just broken up, uh, was it yesterday, the day before? You read about this, does? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the biggest cockfighting thing. What do you know about it, Jack? I mean, I used to live near some of those places, so I'd see all the live poultry markets kind of walk by, but I didn't realize those live poultry markets were also, you know, underground cockfighting rings. Yeah, yeah, and they, yeah, yeah. they busted a farm in upstate. Oof. Yeah. And you know that was uh, that was a, a a component of the farm bill that passed. Actually, included some some language and legislation on uh, being tougher on on animal fighting circuits. So maybe that has something to do with that. Really, I, I yep. did I did not know that. Yeah. Are, do you ha- do we have any good uh, references for people to go to on our website for uh, our feelings as a as a network on uh, the farm bill and what's going on? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, tomorrow on our front page, we're going to run a piece that has opinions from Marion Nessel, uh, Michelle Nishan, the folks over at Just Food, and a few others. So we kind of sourced a whole bunch of opinions and broke down the farm bill. So check the homepage tomorrow. That would be Wednesday. Nice. February 12th. Nice. Good lead-in. Am I right? Am I right? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, nice. Strong. Okay. Uh, so we had a question in on the Twitter from uh, Matt Schuster saying, uh, at Cooking Issues, hey, Dave, any suggestions for a food dehydrator with a timer for a small 50-seat restaurant? I want to de-moist things. Well, okay. Uh, I don't really have any – like the one I use, I use almost exclusively is uh, the Excalibur. Uh, which you know, uh, m- most restaurant folks that I knew, know also use the Excalibur. But the question is, how much stuff are you going to dehydrate, uh, and and on what kind of a consistent basis? Now, the Excalibur doesn't have a timer on it, but like I say, I haven't used ones with a timer. My main experience comes from either using the Excalibur or the crappy round ones. Now, the Excalibur just beats the pants off of the crappy round ones, uh, and the reason is because it can hold a lot more than the crappy round ones can, and because the way the airflow works in it, it's not coming up through the center. It's kind of passed along all the racks from the back. It's a lot more even rack to rack, but... And, and the Excalibur is good because it's relatively small for the amount of stuff it can dehydrate. So, you know, you can dehydrate, you know, uh, in the small Excalibur, which is the one I have, you can dehydrate like two pounds of pasta, right, in, in one go. 
uh, or you know things like that. Now, <clears throat> back the, the kind of kings and queens of dehydration that I have met are the folks at uh, Pure uh, at Pure Food uh, and Wine, Sarma Mel and Gaius's joint. Uh, and back in the day, they used to run. Did you visit that kitchen with me, Stas? No. They they ran. The entire kitchen was – it was like a library of Excaliburs, like Excaliburs stocked on Excaliburs, like w- like whole walls of Excaliburs. And that I was joking with her when I visited years ago that it was the hottest kitchen I had ever been in in my life, even though it was like raw, raw cooking and they didn't have anything because of all those freaking dehydrators running all the time. Excalibur, I believe – I haven't had time to check it because I just got the tweet in, but Excalibur makes a uh, much larger – uh, version now, uh, and I know some people that have used the Cabela's, the Cabela's uh, dehydrator. You know, Cabela's the folks that uh, you know they sell outdoor gear. Although I hear that I've never been to a Cabela's store. I hear that they that they used to be like the life changing sports store, but now Stas has a new one that we need to go to. What's it called? Big Bass Fishing or something. And you, but you say it's like in the most amazing store you've ever been in, right? The one in Foxborough. Where's Foxborough? In the stadium, Gillette Stadium. Where? What, in- what state? Massachusetts. Massachusetts, yeah. And you said it was like the greatest store you've ever visited in your life, right? It is. It had like what, – what it had? You could get mauled by a bear or something if you wanted or yeah, something? They had shooting, fishing. They had yeah. shooting yeah. in the store. But w- one of those like where you hit the target with the with – the Not the crappy ones from the, uh, from the carnival where you, they no. shoot all in different directions and no. you can't actually knock the star out. No. This was – yeah, it was you, really cool. I took Booker and Dax uh, last summer to one of those things and they had to try – they wanted to try and shoot that pellet – you know those horrible pellet mm-hmm. guns at the Carney things? And like there's one little bit of star left and they don't get the prize. I'm like, kids, that's how it works. You're not supposed to win. This is like learn – like kids don't learn. I, I still have a twins that I want to do those kinds of things. Did you used to play carnival games as a kid? Mm-mm. Because your parents didn't let you or because you just, like, even back then, you're like, I hate the carnival games. <laughs> I don't know. I just never did. No? Mm-mm. So anyway, so uh, ask yourself why you need, uh, Matt, a timer on your uh, dehydrator. It, here's what I typically do when I'm dehydrating. And um, I'm sorry that my my uh, recommendations can't – I don't have any personal use of larger ones. You know what I always want to do for really large stuff – now, 50, 60 seats, if you're only doing a couple garnishes, Excalibur is great. And then even up to the point of buying two Excaliburs, I would do it that way, and here's why. You can have two different Excaliburs set to two different drying regimens, uh, and you don't then need to um, – the brain just turned off. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That happens sometimes, huh? The brain, off. You don't need uh, to worry about whether or not two things are different. You can have two things that want to go at different temperatures going at the same time if you just have two Excaliburs. Um I've always wanted to, someone to do large-scale stuff, and I believe the guys uh, at uh, Pure Food did this. Also, Feel Food, uh, you know, Gaylene and Fernando's place down, uh, that we did that event at, they had uh, they have like a bunch of dehydrators. I think they had the larger Excaliburs, right? Did yeah. you notice back in the kitchen? Yeah. Um, so the what I would do is get a couple of those. When you're using a dehydrator, I don't know that a timer is strictly speaking so necessary. What I tend to do is I start my dehydrator's fairly high because uh, there's a huge temperature gradient that forms as you because you, as you're evaporating liquid off of your foods at the get-go and they're still fairly high water uh, you get a lot of evaporative cooling around the surface of your product and so to speed dehydration i always start the dehydrator uh, at a higher uh, temperature and then i turn it down so a lot of times when i'm doing puff snacks uh, the main problem is you don't want to over dehydrate because then you don't have enough moisture left in the in the stuff to puff properly. So what I'll do is is I'll I'll jack it to like 135, uh, which I don't, I don't know what that is in Celsius, but like 135 Fahrenheit uh, for a couple of hours, and then I'll just turn it down to low, down to like 100 or something like this, uh, and then let it ride overnight. Now when the fans are going, it's not going to pick up a lot of moisture unless it's extremely humid in your kitchen. And it'll slowly equilibrate and come down. And then in the morning, if it's still a little bit too soft, it won't be too dry at this point, but if it's still a little bit too soft, then I can jack the temperature for another hour or so. But I just leave them running on low overnight is typically what I do. But you have to really low so you don't uh, over-dry your products. If you wanted a project, the Excalibur is a fairly good case, except the plastic on it tends to break is the only issue with it. You could put a PID on it. I've never done it, but you you could get some way of measuring humidity at those low temperatures and kind of measure the humidity in the box or maybe even, uh, if possible, you could, I guess, do it on liquid and then drive it with a, with a PID controller so that it would ramp itself down. I haven't done it, 
Uh, but it's technically feasible, and I'd say you could probably do it for under 200 bucks, uh, even with the weird stuff you'd be measuring. Uh, trivially, less if you just want to put it on a, a timer and ramp silk, you can go to uh, Albert Instruments or anything like that and buy a, uh, a controller that you could put on a timer and ramp soak the temperature uh, if you didn't care about external measurements. And that would be a trivial problem. That would cost you like on the order of like 45 bucks to do. And you know, if you've never done one before, it would take you probably a couple hours to figure it out. But I always wanted to do that with a bread with a bread proofer. We were going to do that. Remember years ago we were going to do that? We never did it. We were going to convert a giant bread proofer mm-hmm. into a dehydrator. Mm-hmm. I think someone probably does that commercially because it's a good idea and it makes sense. Anyway, uh, so much for dehydrators. I was doing a bunch of – what was I doing on my dehydrator? Paul Pasta recently I was doing. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we got a caller. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, Dave, Nastasha, Jack, everyone. It's Brian. How you doing? Doing well. Yourself? Good. Um, so two things. One is I have a question about bread, but uh, first is that uh, never heard heard the final answer about making my own koji from the uh, the other week. I know, dude. I have not gotten a hold of Ryan yet. Is the reason why you haven't gotten the information yet? I need to get a hold of those guys. I've like they've been. They haven't been MIA. I've been MIA, which is why you don't have the final answer yet. So we'll start with the other uh, one, and I still owe you that answer. Well, thank you very much. I'll, I'll hold on for that. Um, but this one has to do with 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 bread baking at home. So um, I don't have a deck oven. Uh, here, you know, so um, I have no possibility of, um, you know, injecting steam into 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 my oven, you know, through the oven it, itself. And so my question is, you know, I've been doing a little bit of reading, and I'm looking at the, a couple different books, and one is uh, the Tartine Bread Book, which says um, they they use a um, a combo cooker. A, it's kind of like a Dutch oven basically, um, in which the kind of the smaller part, um, they, they kind of bake essentially on the lid. Um, so it's basically like a, a Dutch oven um, as a way of kind of capturing the steam. And then the other one... You mean like, like, La- like Leahy style? Like Leahy style, okay. exactly. Yep. All right. So uh, except that if you use what's called a combo cooker, it, it makes it easier to, to, to not burn yourself. Hmm. Um, and then the other other thing, and they're made by Loge, by the way. Huh. And then the other thing I'm looking at is the Bouchon Bakery um, uh, a cookbook from um, Thomas Keller and Sebastian Ruxell, and they're saying basically um, take a ridiculous amount of um, river stones and chain and put it in in the in the bottom of the, of the oven as a way of of capturing all the heat, and then take a super soaker and inject a huge amount of water into the oven so it all kind of uh, turns, to, turns to steam. And I'm kind of wondering what's the best way to get steam into the oven? Which of these two methods would be most, most effective for bread baking? Okay, now your oven is under-fired gas oven? Yeah. Okay. It's a standard, standard home gas oven. Right, but the, the heat comes from then from below. Correct. Yeah, because you can't pull that – like if you have like a, an electric oven with uh, upper elements and stuff like that, you can't pull that lower chain. The reason that the chains and whatnot on the bottom of the oven is because that's where the heat is most intense. So that's like an old school uh, you know, bread baker's way to kind of um, – you know, do you know, cludge uh, having not having you know real steam injection, and it works the way that it obviously sounds. It's going to work by um, literally you you put a bunch of you know st- stuff in the bottom with thermal mass, let it heat up, right, and then and they, they use I, look, stones. I'd be a little bit wary of because I, everyone says like river stones aren't going to break. I've put stones that I thought were pretty smooth in fires and had them blow up before. Now, the ovens probably maybe not be violent enough to blow a stone apart, but I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Right. Uh, you know, I've, I've, put, I've put many stones on fires before for various reasons and had them explode kind of spectacularly explode. Now, it's inside of an oven, but you wouldn't want to be – lowering your oven and putting your face in there when you're loading something to, you know, just to have something explode on you. You know what I mean? Um, so I don't know. I think that's the super soaker where you can do it from a distance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good idea. Super soaker. I forgot super so- – when you said super soaker, you know, I was in my head I was thinking spray bottle because that's what I'm used to. Uh, so super soaker, interesting. My my kids would love it if I had to bring a super soaker home to cook with. They would absolutely <laughs> love it. Um, but the um, – so, I mean, that works. Right. Um, the 
you know, I've never done a lot of the like Leahy style. By the way, that thing you call a combo cooker is that like their camp oven? Is that the Loge camp oven? Like their old school Dutch know. camp oven? Google Google combo cooker, and so basically it's um, it, it's got a like what the lid would have a handle, and I think you can cook on it separately. It's kind of like the lid would be the skillet, and then you put the the pot kind of right over it is is the is the technique. Yeah. Um, in, in in this case. Oh, inverted. Inverted, yeah. Gotcha. So you're not having to, like, try to jam the your dough into a hot Dutch oven. Yeah, I think that's like the old camp cookers that you could flip the lids on and do stuff like that. They're pretty cool. Is, do you like it? I don't have one. I'm, I'm trying to figure out whether or not I should get one or if, um, you know, I should go with the, with the, the Bouchon method. Well, do you like the Leahy? St- do you like that Leahy style, like the no need kind of very loose, like uh, large internal irregular bubble stuff cooked in a Dutch oven? Do you like it? Um, I've I've tried it in a in a Dutch oven at a friend's house, and the dough and it tasted fine. But the problem is, is you got to shape it into a bowl, yeah, right. So you can't have other shapes of bread. Well, I mean that dough is so loose anyway that you're gonna ha- it's gonna be problematic, I think, to do. I mean, at least the recipes of it I've tried is very loose. I would try that. The- but it doesn't matter what you know what the what the dough is necessarily. It's a, I guess my question has to do with the method, right? And 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 I guess the other problem with that is that you know does it in addition to what it does in terms of capturing steam, how does it change the temperature of of the bread? Because then you have this kind of radiating heat source. Around around the bread, in addition to the oven. Right. Well, I mean, I think of it mainly. I haven't thought about the second aspect of it. I've really sp- spent most of my kind of the mental energy on thinking about those things about the actual ability of the closed but still vented container to deliver steam to the crust over the initial portion of the bacon before the initial dehydration hits it. Right. Right. Um, and look, it's effective. I, look, I I tend to you know you know when I was doing it, I used I didn't use river stones. I had a lot of masonry at the bottom of my oven, and I would throw water on it uh, to cause kind of you know violent steam eruptions whenever you know when when I loaded and when I when I didn't. And I always had good luck with doing it that way. Uh, I never did the chains because I had a lot of masonry. Now, the reason why a lot of people don't recommend. And this is the, you know the flip side putting a lot of masonry or, you know uh, or stones or chains or stuff in chains aren't going to affect the thermal mass of your oven as much because metal heats up fairly quickly uh, but you know in my the, the first one I did which had a boatload of fire brick in it it would take uh, like an hour and a half to heat up all the way you know what I mean uh, um, yeah. and you know I solved that in the last oven I haven't modified my current oven. well I did a little bit but I haven't fully modified my current oven in my last modified oven I did that I put uh secondary heating elements into into my into my oven and the secondary heating elements allowed me to heat up a mass of masonry fairly fairly quickly uh it, which now I'm th- you know I'm I'm using less masonry as well more nimbly with with the heating elements in it um so, you know, if you could get away, if you like the results by doing the kind of chain uh, and steam method, the thing I like about that is it get, leaves you a lot more open with loading your oven and futzing around because you're not worried about having to fit inside of some sort of Dutch oven or, or skillet thing. You can just have your stone or if you're a, a, a steel person, if you, if you, you know, buy the modernist uh, – uh, cooking story and switch to steel instead of stone for the, your, your bottom it gives you much more uh, ability to load things in different ways. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just uh, it, it enables you to to make different shapes. I can make baguettes and and things. It doesn't have to be round and fit into the into the into the Dutch, Dutch oven. But as far as steam injection, you're not sure which is going to be most effective. No, kind of stimulating that. Okay. No, but you know, look, I've had some people say to me. Hey, you know, the steam dissipates very quickly when you just put steam in the – you know, the other thing people used to do is they'd load ice cubes in 
uh, on sheet trays right on the bottom of the hot oven, and then they would vaporize fairly quickly because a lot of people complain that the a toss of water on, the steam dissipates so quickly that you're not getting the full effect that you would want. But that's the argument for the Dutch oven being the better technology because it's going to contain more steam around the bread longer than just throwing the thing in. And that's why some people used to do like kind of ice cubes on the bottom instead of um, instead of water because it was guaranteeing like a longer delivery of uh, moisture to the, to the to the product. I don't necessarily know I believe that. I'll tell you what I'm actually going to do. Uh, but I don't know how how you know much you're allowed to mod- modify your oven. I'm I'm planning on getting um, like uh, uh, there's a, most ovens on the side where the control stuff is have a place uh, where you can drill a small hole. And I'm, I was going to drill a small hole in, into it and then uh, have a copper tube feeding up out of it with mm-hmm. uh, uh, like a bottle that you could set like an IV drip and just have it drip uh, water in and you could change whatever rate you want and actually add water to the oven with the door closed. And that's what I'm going to do uh, you know, fairly soon. Like the, my just handed my, my book manuscript in again, the, the copy written, so I have a little more time. So hopefully I'm going to do that in the next couple of weeks. The other thing, have you bought for, for loading, have you bought a super peel yet? No, I haven't. You've seen it though? I've seen it. It's like uh, you kind of pull it, and then the um, the canvas kind of rolls down. Yeah, it's freaking awesome. I, I haven't oh, got a chance to great. use it that much, but it's freaking awesome. I, I bought it for my for my kid's birthday party when I was going to do a bunch of pizza, and uh, dag nabbit. It's like I used to. Stas, you ever do that kind of baking, bread, and that kind of stuff? I like detest loading stuff often on peels. So much so that when I used to do pizza, I would make the pizzas on uh, parchment paper and then cut the parchment paper out and then just load all of my racks with uh, with uh, pizza loaded on parchment and then cook them on the parchment paper because it's so easy to load parchment off and on. But the super peel, I like it so far. Check it out. Um, it sounds like it's probably really good for really slack doughs. Oh yeah, I mean, because you're not touching, you're not moving it around. If you look, if you've done done any bread loading on peels before, the pros they always make it look easy. But I don't bake bread that often, you know. And I hate having to to shake it, and then I hate over over you know uh, over flouring or over whatever you add, whatever your you know proclivities yeah, are on the bottom. On the bottom, I hate that. And then you get that little extra crap of like you know either floury or like burnt on the. I hate it. You know what I mean? I hate it, and I I hate the thought of it sticking. I hate sitting down there and and. Around with it near my oven, I hate it. I hate it all. But the super peel, uh, you know, that's a pretty cool little uh, piece of uh, kit. You can get it on Amazon now, by the way. Hmm. Yeah, look into it. Dude, what do you think about those baking steels that Modernist Cuisine recommends? You think that just getting the River Rocks and the and the uh, and the chain is is just as good? Well, the, the, the river rocks in the chain is not to bake right on top of. That's for literally just for the steam aspect of it. Right, so right. it's not meant to replace. Uh, it's not meant to replace the way in which uh, heat energy is delivered to the bottom of the crust uh, on an, you know on initial bake in um, in breads. And so the old school way of doing it, which is based literally on trying to convert your oven into a, you know an old masonry oven. You know, so if you go and you read like the Bread Builders by. Um, Oh my gosh! It's by uh, Dove and Wing Scott. I think I forget, I forget the names of the authors, but the Bread Builders, which was one of the first, you know, you know, decades ago, or whatever, a couple decade ago, like one of the first kind of really cool, like here's how to build a bread oven book for folks like us, and uh, you know, it's like mimicking a bread oven inside, and that's the, the baking stone, right? Now, uh, the thing about a stone is, is that they store heat for a long time. But they're very slow kind of at releasing it. It's kind of retained heat kind of technology. Whereas the guys at Modernist Cuisine, and I've spoken at length with Chris Young about this, who's now running Chef Steps, and I, you know, I think this was you know, in part like his doing, uh, well, at least, at least one-third in part, right, because he was you know, the second author on that book, is you don't need to store up the energy for a long time. Uh, you just need to deliver it fairly quickly at the beginning, and so you need a thick enough piece of metal such that it can store enough heat to deliver that heat wall up to your crust. And that is the idea of the steel as opposed to the stone, right? And clearly it's more versatile, but I just haven't really had an opportunity to use it because by the time that had come out, I'd already invested in a bunch of stone and I cooked a bunch of it. But I, I have one now. I haven't really used it yet. I'm going to see whether or not I like it when I fire up my oven ne- next time. But you know, they they 
they did a lot of testing, and they have a lot of testimonials around it, and people are now selling those uh, those metal uh, things at the at the houseware store. So you know, clearly, clearly, it must have some e- efficacy. Yeah, um, sounds like it. But I'm wondering if it's too much for. It sounds good for pizza, where you want want it quick and and and, and bam to, to to deliver all that heat. But I'm wondering if for bread it might be too much, and it will uh, would, would char the bottom. Do you think? I don't know. You know, I don't think it'll char the bottom because it's never going to reheat up over the top of your initial of your oven temperature. So you know, if you're if you have uh, you know, depending on how you cook, how you bake, you know, if you uh, you know. If, if you use a ramping temperature, so if you're one of those people that starts a little bit higher and then ramps down a little bit, they, the stone will never – I mean the uh, metal will never heat above your oven temperature. Do you know what I'm saying? What, what it will do is deliver that initial oven temperature for uh, longer to the bottom of your crust than any other technique will. Uh, a stone will deliver a more – uh, will deliver heat for longer, but once it's depleted, will not heat back up to oven temperatures as as quickly or as at quickly. all. You know what I mean? Right, right. Okay, this has been really, really helpful. Um, I'll I'll let you know what I end up going going with and and see what happens. All right, cool. Let us know. All right, all right. Thanks. Have a good week. Bye. Are right, you too? Bye. Uh, Thomas Vo wrote in at Cooking Issues, clarifying with agar. Agar, my favorite clarification seaweed. You ever notice agar is like the one thing where like we say agar, but like a lot of people technically say agar, agar. Like they say it twice. Mm-hmm. The hydrocolloid's so nice. They named it twice. Agar, agar. Stas hates working with agar, don't you? I do. I do. Remember that time we had to do all that grapefruit and we died, did a freestyle on it and then it didn't work. And so then we had to do, we had to, we had to do like quick agar on like gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of grapefruit, yeah, and then we were spinning that sucker <laughs> in the centrifuge and trying to pour it off, and then we kept on having to re-spin it to get yield because our yield wasn't good enough, and we needed to get that crap out. And we had that event. Yeah. And you remember that? what did you say to me? I'm never doing this again. Yeah. I believe that's I don't what think I've it. done it. No. Yeah. It's like three years ago. Yeah, you're like I'm never doing this again. Yeah. Yeah. You're like as for clarification, Dave. Not me. I won't do it. <laughs> you don't mind SPL, though. You would do Hustino. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, clarifying with agar. Juice has a funny medicinal taste post-clarify. Is this normal from agar? Any brand name recommendations? Thanks. Well, I only use telephone brand agar. Actually, that's true. I do only use telephone brand agar. Uh, but that's because you can buy telephone brand agar from uh, grocery stores, like uh, Asian grocery stores. Now I have that – oh, my gosh. I have that Spotify, the news thing going away. Asian grocery store. Anyway, so the uh, – but the thing is, uh, you know, you can use any agar as long as you get used to it. I wouldn't use the prehydrated ones or the ones that don't require boiling because although I haven't used them, I know friends of mine who have had bad luck with them. The – I've never had an off taste from agar, to be honest. What I would do is taste your – literally taste the agar powder and see whether or not you're getting uh, any, any sort of off taste. What I think is happening – is this uh, the taste of juices changes sometimes quite radically when you clarify them? So what's most likely happening, because uh, you don't specify what kind of juice that you're using, uh, is that um, there are some flavor that the, this medicinal flavor was present already in the juice, but was being masked by another flavor that was removed by uh, a, clearly a, a better flavor than was removed that was removed by the agar. So uh, just to give you an idea, when you agar clarify orange juice, the remaining orange juice tastes the clarified stuff tastes like sunny D, right? So if you like sunny D, then I guess that's good, but you know most people want orange juice to taste like orange juice and not like I, I haven't decided. I think it tastes more like sunny D than like tang. Have you tasted this does? No. Do you, did you drink tang growing up? No. What about sunny D? Yeah. Do you you like Sunny D? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you grew up with it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, So anyways, so uh, that's my feeling. So when you clarify grapefruit juice with agar, um, it appears to get much sweeter. It's not actually getting sweeter. It's just the naringin and some of the bitter components have been stripped from it by the agar. So my guess is that it's not the brand of agar you're using. It's the fact that there's flavors getting stripped out of it. But I could be wrong. Taste 
taste the agar. I'm a big believer in tasting a lot of these things at least once to see kind of what's going on. And some hydrocolloids definitely do add a flavor to it. But think about it. When you're clarifying with agar, you're adding two grams per liter. That's two-tenths of one percent of agar. Uh, and you could add, you know, two gra- like two grams of straight acid, for instance, wouldn't change uh, – wouldn't make a liter of product that acidic. You know what I mean? Lime juice, for reference, is around 6% acidity, and this is two-tenths of 1% or 10 times th- – 30 times less acid that's in, in lime juice. It's the equivalent of putting uh, – an um, one ounce of lime juice into a liter of, of liquid. Anyway, uh, so I doubt that, and that's a very strong acid. So I'm doubting that you're getting the flavor transfer off it, but I could be wrong. Things like methocell, you, you tend, to tar- tend to start tasting once the percentages get you know up into the 1% range, things like this, you know, eight-tenths of a percent or 1%. Things like uh, guar, which can have a very beany taste. Guar, if you don't get the good one. Uh Fracking guar. Uh, it, it, you know, that can have a beanie taste that you can taste when you get over about half a percent, but um, not agar. I haven't had a problem with it. Oh, unless you're using those weird, like, unpurified, like, agar flakelets, which might have God knows what kind of, like, seaweed residue left in them. You, you, just make sure you're buying the powder. The powder. Uh, white powder. Uh, should we take a break? Sure. We'll take a break. Come right back with Cooking Issues. <laughs> to announce our Heritage Rare Breed Chicken Rotation. We've partnered with Frank Reese, the country's preeminent poultry farmer, to create an alternative market for non-industry bred chicken and show our customers what real chicken tastes like. Frank's chickens look and taste different from commodity poultry. They have not been genetically manipulated or pumped with antibiotics to increase their growth rate. Frank breeds and hatches his own birds so he can guarantee the finest animal welfare from start to finish. Every three months, Heritage Foods USA will offer a new, rare breed of chicken on our website and at the Heritage Meat Shop. Our inaugural variety is the Colombian Wyandotte. These birds are good for frying and are sought after for their fine texture, taste, and healthy lipid fine yellow fat. Heritage Foods USA is the only place you can taste these special heritage birds. Order today at heritagefoodsusa.com. Fine yellow fat. Back with cooking issues. That one excited you, huh? Yeah. Well, good. Anytime you got banjo music, banjo music's the best. I thought it was the chickens that excited you. Well, it's chickens plus banjos. How do you beat chickens plus banjos, especially coming off of a cockfighting bust? Impossible. Possible. Hey, Dave, by the way, uh, we were at the Eat, Drink, Bloody Mary competition again this year. Oh, yeah? And I, I enjoyed the Booker Index uh, kind of, what was it, pineapple curry... This is a wacky Bloody Mary you guys had there. Did you like it? That's our, I liked it. Our bartender, our bartender Austin, that uh, that was his uh, creation. The only thing uh, I uh, helped them with is they were having some problem in the uh, mid palate, so I had him put a little tomato paste in to mm. round out the mid palate. But uh, yeah, it look, did not win. I, I heard it did not win. Who won? Uh, the the judges' choice went to Dover, and then the people's choice went to Extra Fancy, which was like. It's funny. The People's Choice went to the the most classic kind of, of standard Bloody Mary, and of I was like, "Of course, of where, course." Where does the line sit? You know, like w- when does what you're making cease to be a Bloody Mary, or for that matter, any classic cocktail? Right? Like, look, like, like the thing is, is that anything that you do, if you're going to do classic, you know, you're gonna you're gonna do classic. When people want. The crap that they're that they're used to. That's why, like every year, like last year, you know, we did the we did the tomato soup with the with this grilled cheese sandwich um, for our, for the Bloody Mary, 
and people in general want you know they want what they want but they what they what they're used to it's kind of sad but like unless they're specifically going someplace to have it reinvented people in general just kind of want uh, stuff. Well, the one that won the judge's choice was it wildly different or it no? was pretty different what was it uh it had some kind of weird spices in it i i don't I, there were a lot to taste i remember it being one of the funkier ones though yeah. but i mean it's like is it even a bloody mary anymore at that point you know well, I mean, these contests, right? Like, here's the thing. Look, let's say you were going to make a contest. People in general, they like a good story. This is a contest now. They like a good story, and you have to reinvent it. Otherwise, what's the point? Like, it's not about let's get let's get five people in the room. We'll all make the same daiquiri specs, and you'll see who makes the best daiquiri. You know what I mean? Uh, Bloody Mary is a good one for people because everyone has their own – it's kind of like barbecue sauce. Everyone has like – they're like, well, my barbecue sauce, exactly how much brown sugar and and uh, you know other stuff in it do I put in it, you know, whatever, molasses or whatever, vinegar. It's like because they're all roughly same but people are like – people are like you know violently proud of their particular mix of the same ingredients that the next fella uses or they're like – I add this one special ingredient that makes mine radically different. It's not really radically different. They're all fairly similar. You know what I mean? Uh, and so when in contests like that, th- there's kind of different ways you can go. In a Bloody Mary contest, there's the radical difference idea and then there's you know where you take, hey, I'm doing a spicy tomato-based cocktail. Now where can I go with that that's totally different? You know, Or you could say I'm going to go you – know, with a very similar concept, but then I'm going to add like my special pickle to it. I'm making little quotes fingers, and that's another <laughs> way to you know that's another way to to kind of h- handle these contests. In general, someone who does something that has a flavor profile fairly similar to uh, what people are used to tends to win. Uh, you know, if you have like a little bit of like you know flair added to it, like great. But um, at least that's been my in my experience yeah funny to see like i don't like bloody marys so all the ones that i was voting for were the ones that didn't taste like bloody marys wow yeah. you don't like bloody marys what do you have against a bloody mary i don't know it's uh to me it's like a meal like to me <laughs> like a meal yeah oh, all right Styles, you like bloody marys not really right for real mm-hmm. what is it? Wait, my phone won't update is it because you so don't like, like what don't you like about them it's like a meal it's heavy yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i hate most kind of gloopy, uh, gloopy drinks, but that's the one that gets a pass for me. I don't like. Uh, I'm part of this new th- new thing that we're all starting, where you don't have to eat them at uh, night. I don't think you necessarily need to have the the the. I mean, sorry, in the in the morning. I think you can have one at night, even though we started the bar with uh, with a a drink called. Um, Lady of the Night, which was a Bloody Mary that was clarified so that you could drink it at night. I think you could drink it during the day. Let's not forget, someone asked me this the other day, and uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid, you weren't supposed to have gin and tonics in the wintertime. It was summertime only. It was the equivalent of where, which is the, which is the uh, holiday that, that ends the uh, summer stuff? Um, is it Labor Day? Yeah, Labor Day. Labor Day. You know how you're not supposed to wear white after Labor Day? Mm-hmm. Anyone remember this? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it, it was the same way with gin and tonics. You weren't supposed to order gin and tonic after Labor Day either. It's kind of when you can wear white is when you can also order gin, gin and tonic, right? I mean I never wear white. But but the the that's the point. But that taboo is gone. I mean I, no one has a stigma now walking into a bar and ordering a gin and tonic any time of year. People don't even think of it as a seasonal drink anymore. Uh, and so I think the Bloody Mary might be going that way where it's not only seen as you know kind of a – uh, a morning thing. I mean, think when you think about it, people can order a corpse reviver whenever they want. A corpse reviver is meant to uh, be a little hair of the dog that bit you for like heavily alcohol infused people in the morning. Anyway, uh, wait, Jack, we got a caller. We do. Caller, you are on the air. Hey, Dave, it's me, Don Lee. Hey, Don Lee. I'm calling in to remind you that you are barbacking for us on Sunday at a MoFad fundraiser at the Golden Cadillac. I uh, that is uh, that is true. That is true. From what time? 5 p.m. to? 5 p.m. until 7 p.m. We're going to do $8 cocktails courtesy of Perno Ricard, and all proceeds will be going to uh, the Museum of Food and Drink. Are we getting uh, Are we getting Missy Elliott to recut uh, Get Your Freak On with Get Your Drink On for that, or is that later? Uh, I think that's going to be the next fundraiser. The next fundraiser? Get Your yeah. Drink On. 
get your drink on. That'd be great, though, right? Yeah, this time you get to come uh, harass me and John Derrigan bartending together for the first time in three years, and uh, he's going to make some Malibu drinks. I'm going to make some Kahlua drinks, and we're going to, you know, we're going to apply molecules to make uh, bad cocktails taste good. Oh, sweet, sweet. Well, you know, I hate molecules. I don't like them because I don't like matter. I don't like existence, so I detest all forms of molecules. But uh, what was the last time? What was the three years ago? What did you guys do three years ago? We were at uh, PDT. We opened PDT together. That was only uh, three years ago. That was no. Well, we, we opened PDT five years ago. That was only five well, years ago. Now. Yeah, can you believe that? That was only five years ago. It seems like eight lifetimes ago. Yep. So yeah, Don Lee and uh, John Darragon were the opening team at PDT and brought you such drinks as the Benton's. What was it? Benton's. What would you call that drink? The Benton's Old Fashioned. Yeah, with the with the fat washed uh, the fat washed. Uh, with the fat wash bourbon, uh, Benton's bacon into Four Roses Yellow Label, and uh, and for the record, you're allowed to totally do bacon infused whatever you want. I'm not going to give you shit about that. No, but I'm not. I will never do it. I won't. Like you, you guys own that. It's like, in fact, in the cocktail book, like the the Maria made me put a fat washed. Uh, that's my editor. Made me put a fat wash drink in, and so I did a take on. Do you remember? Um, t- you, t- you know, Tona uh, Palomino, who was at WD50, is now uh, mm-hmm. doing bar in uh, in uh, Chicago. He had a drink on the menu at WD called uh, Old School back in like 07. And Old School was fat washed uh, – um, what's it called? What's that stuff called? Peanut butter. But it was uh, – he did it en fleurage style. He would like spread a thin layer of peanut butter on the bottom of a hotel pan and then pour the stuff on top. And then they would let it sit in the fridge forever because he was going to carbonate it. So he couldn't uh, he couldn't mix it in because because peanut butter has a lot of stuff that dissolves into liquid and doesn't, doesn't cap out the way bacon does, right? Right. And so – uh, yeah, so he did that, and then he would mix in uh, Welch's grape jelly and then carbonate it, which is awesome, right? So I did yep. I did a take on, on that one because I figured, you know, PB&J. And so many other people have ripped on the on the bacon thing that, like, you know, I, could, I couldn't add, like, another there – was, there was no places left on the page to tear. I couldn't rip on it anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so anyway, but yeah, so the, for those of you, uh, you know, you should come and the re-teamed – Original PDT team, OG PDT, right? Don Lee, for those of you that uh, don't keep track of Don Lee's career, as I'm sure most of you do, uh, is now uh, doing the bar program. Is it Cocktail Kingdom, uh, but is now doing the bar program. Is that temporary or is that permanent? It's permanent. And so I'm still at Cocktail Kingdom, and I'm also doing Golden Cadillac. No, I meant Golden Cadillac. That's permanent bar program or that's temporary? Permanent bar program. Okay, so Don Lee is now running the bar program at Golden Cadillac, which is a fine bar on First and First here in – it's the easiest address to remember in the world, First and First. I couldn't remember what the street was. First and First, uh, Golden Cadillac, and uh, you got the awesome menus with like the, with the really poorly done 70s-style cutouts of the drinks on the back. I like that. We're trying to keep it classy. It's totally, totally classy. You can go there and get an overproof daiquiri with – tell them the garnish, Don. A disco ball. It's the disco daiquiri. Yeah, I have. I have a couple of those. They're a little. The, you shouldn't. Can you like in the future? They're. I think they're key rings, right? Can you get them instead with, um, with like those uh, those cheap earring settings on them, so that so that the people can wear them as earrings on the way out. Well, we're going to get the new uh, instead of being the regular key ring. We're getting the key ring that's more like a carabiner, so it'll just clip on the side, so you can clip it onto whatever you want. Oh, nice! All right, well, I'll have to come back and get some more uh, get some more stuff. So come to the Golden Cadillac on first and first on Sunday, 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 where I will be plying my barback skills between five and seven p.m. for the Museum of Food and Drink, barbacking for the great John Darragon and Don Lee. Right? Sounds great. All right, dude. All right, brother. Anything else or just doing some business? Uh, I, got, I got one other thing to chime in on last week's uh, podcast or uh, show that you guys did. Uh, since you give away all your great secrets, I'll give you one of my secrets. Ooh, nice. For the person who wanted to know how to get to the, the different science resources in the, on the Internet that are behind a paywall. Oh, yeah? Okay, good. I want to – yeah, okay, good. So if you are part of a uh, major city library system like the New York Public Library or you know, Los Angeles Public Library, any of these big city ones, they usually have a sharing system with the university library. So you can usually request a book from a university library, and they'll just send it to your local library so you can borrow it for some fixed amount of time. However, if there is a reference book that the library at the university does not lend out, they will give you a one-time, one-day pass to go into the university library to see the reference book. So most science um, journals are considered a reference book, and so they're not lent out. 
But if you look up uh, on any university library system, you know, let's say NYU or Columbia, for example, here in New York City, through the New York public library system, they will carry all the journals, probably not even physical form, probably in digital form. But if you get the one-time pass, once you're in the library, now you're behind the paywall. Now you can do whatever you want. You know, what I do is just go in for a day, scrape every article I can, follow all the links, all the different uh, references, and then I'll just read them in my spare time later. Strong advice from Don Lee. Also, by the way, uh, Don and well, even John in his current life are kind of uh, like da- computer data nerds. Am I right about this? Uh, Former life. Get away from that, but Former you know, life. It's pulling me back in. Pulling you back in, but that's why that's why you should. Well, I'm 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 giving that as reason why they should know the tip. And oh, by the way, Don Lee, a tip from Don Lee is a guarantee because the man always like whenever whenever there's a question and like you need some sort of hookup, you just ask Don because he's already figured the hookup. Am I right? You know, I'm prepared for the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, dude. This is one of the things that you guys have to know about Don Lee. If I could give you one piece of advice on this podcast, is make friends with Don Lee. Seriously. All right, Don. I'll see you on Sunday, brother. See you soon. All right. Okay. So we had a question in from Paris, France. Two or three weeks ago, you had two separate questions on one, vegetable canned soup that has to be heated for a lot of pasteurization, which affects the flavor, and two, how beer and soda cans are better at keeping the carbonation than plastic bottles are. But doesn't soda canning uh, require both cold temperatures to preserve carbonations and the same level of hygiene pasteurization as soup? I didn't answer this question already? No. Okay. Uh, in that case, uh, it w- would it be possible to can vegetable soup at a low enough temperature so that we don't kill the flavors and uh, respect appropriate food safety procedures? Do I miss some fundamental differences in the two type of processes? Best and keep up the good works, Stan B. Yeah, this is very, very different. Here's the deal. <clears throat> so um, when you are – when you have uh, uh, beer uh, and, and soda, right, in a can, there, you st- anytime you have uh, – soda uh the carbonation in the soda is acting to do the vast majority of the work when it comes to um when it comes to killing off bacteria because carbon dioxide is extremely bacteria static right so in addition to that a lot of times old school sodas that can't be pasteurized at all have uh a little bit of sodium benzoate added to it, uh, sometimes potassium sorbate. And they're added as preservatives primarily not to stop dangerous things from growing because ain't nothing dangerous going to grow inside of that uh, because of the carbon dioxide, but to prevent yeast from growing and converting the sugar uh, to alcohol and and causing the flavors of the the thing to go off, right? That's the primary function, and that's why you pasteurize uh, products uh, like sodas and whatnot. But... You don't have to do a sterilization on a soda uh, or on a beer uh, the same way you would have to. So you don't have to go to the same high pressures or temperatures, which are related to pressure. You don't have to go to the same high temperatures on a beer because it's enough to kill the yeast, right? Because you're not really worried about the bacteria, but to kill the yeast and any vegetative stuff because no spores are going to generate inside of the product. Now, Spores. Spores. The spores. But on the other hand, if you have soup, right, you need to heat it to a high enough temperature, canning temperatures, so that you can get everything in there dead because you're going to keep it at uh, on shel- at shelf temperature uh, for God knows how long and you can't have nasty anaerobic things growing inside of there like botulism, which could cause the cans to blow up and whatnot and kill you. You know, the can blowing up. That's what I'm worried about first, the can blowing up. No, it'll c- kill you. Uh, so in general, sodas are acidic, which is going to prevent things like that from happening and um, filled with carbon dioxide, which definitely is going to prevent things like that happening. So they're fundamentally um, – they're fundamentally uh, different for pasteurization problem from uh, the soup. Yeah? Yep. Yeah. All right. I was like, I got some more questions in on of the Twitter. Uh, where is it? Where is it? Oh, so this is from uh, EC North America. By the way, they now go just by EC, not EC or ISI. They just launched the uh, rapid infusion kit that uh, they say they say new EC rapid infusion kit just launched, inspired by the creator brainchild of Rapid Infusion at Cooking Issues. And they sent a Twitter feed out of it. Let's see what it looks like. You want to see what it looks like? I was like, nah, nah, don't really care. Nah, nah. Inspired. Oh, look, oh my gosh. You're going you're gonna to think the look of it. Look at, Take a look at Stas. You can't see it on the line, but we can post a picture of it. Is that Does the little rubber thing freak you out a little bit? Yeah. 
Why I mean, is that you know, I love the I love the easy, but it's looking a little bit like a sex toy there. Yeah, Jack, you got to look that up and throw that up on, on our thing. Uh, last week we had a question, and for some reason I can't find my uh, old uh, questions, but we had a question on um, parchment paper and talking about parchment paper and kind of what it is and what's the difference between all the different kinds of uh, parchment paper. So I'll talk a little bit about that now. Uh, the the thing about parchment papers is a lot of people and no one probably who no one will know remember that, remember that? that was a no one will know that's a psychic friends network but who did that that was jay moore who did the psychic friends network pretending to be christopher mm, walken mm-hmm. and travis my brother-in-law is shooting the the you know the cocktail book he uh he's started saying that to me over and over again so now like whenever anyone says that we we, we i love like how many times in my life do we I- imitate the fake imitation of somebody else, right? So I, I'm not even doing Christopher Walken. I'm doing Jay Moore doing Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken. Todd Bridges can be at your house in your driveway. No one will know. Uh, the theory of that w- was that a bunch of whack jobs. Todd Bridges actually was a nice guy. I met him. Uh, when, when, remember when we did that show that time? They were having me doing about safety or something like this and, and low temp- meat glue and safety. Remember when that big thing was going around and everyone was worried about it? And we did some show. Fox or something like this, and Todd Bridges was on. Sweet dude. Sweet dude. Todd Bridges, Willis, by the way, for those of you that don't remember uh, the good, the uh, the different strokes. You watch different strokes? No. Really? Mm hmm. Not at all? Nope. What about you, Jack? Uh, sorry, no, I don't. <laughs> what the hell? Like, like, I feel like you guys had entirely different childhoods for, for the, than the one I, I had. Anyway, so, uh, parchment. So, a lot of people mistake uh, wax paper for parchment. You, you guys don't make that mistake. You would never make that mistake, right? If I asked you for uh-huh. parchment paper, you'd never show up with wax paper, right? Right. Because it's coated with what? Wax. Wax. Parchment paper is meant to cook with. Wax paper is great. I love wax paper. But I can't tell you how many people confuse wax paper and parchment, which is ridiculous. The other one, you know what people do? People are like, tonic water doesn't have any sugar in it because it's like salsa, right? Wrong. Tonic water has as much sugar in it as a regular soda does. As much. It's around 10% sugar. You ever make that mistake, Scott? You never made that mistake. Nope. Jack, would you ever make that mistake? No. No. Uh, they're like, uh, I'm not going to say it. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to deal with it. So uh, most parchment paper that you buy nowadays, and, and by that I mean I buy Reynolds brand typically, uh, is coated with silicone. And that's really where a lot, of, a lot of the non-stickness of it comes from. Now what I don't know about parchment paper – I wasn't able to do anything uh, kind of big on it. Is that I I would use parchment paper on my pizzas all the time. The only issue is is that my pizza oven would get well above the decomposition temperatures of silicone, and so I'm wondering whether or not it was actually kind of a bad idea to put the parchment paper into a place where it's going to get you know fundamentally incinerated. It used to be if I didn't cut, I would have to cut the parchment paper all around the pizza dough and load it in because the stuff around the sides would catch on fire otherwise. You know, the stuff right underneath the pizza had the pizza to protect it, so it's not going to get burnt, and it separates great. But the separate – separates great. What am I learning speaking English? Separates well. But the – it's great. Uh, but the uh, – uh, so it's the silicone, the silicone impregnated silicone that, that uh, has it work. All the parchment papers that I use have that silicone. There's a new parchment paper out there that has uh, aluminum bonded to one side of it. So it's aluminum foil on one side and parchment on the other. And it's sold as baking pan liners. And the theoretical advantage of it is it lays a lot flatter than parchment paper does. But I can't really tell you whether whether you know how awesome it is. I used it, and all I noted was that it was a lot more expensive than uh, the other stuff. But in general, I'm a big fan of parchment paper, and I hope that helps a little a bit. Um, Okay, I found my other questions from last week. William McGee wrote in. I didn't answer about French fry cutters, did I? No. William McGee wrote in and said, Do you have any recommendations for French fry cutters for home use? I've seen models both horizontal and vertical. Also, on the Kickstarter for the Sears All, you had a recipe book available to higher-level backers. Will you have this recipe book available separately at a later date for purchase? Thanks, William McGee. Stas, will we? Yes. <laughs> you just made that up? Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. So, French fry cutters. I Here's the deal. Uh, avoid any plastic French fry cutter. Just avoid them. Because why? They're going to break. They're useless, right? Uh, I, the French fry cutter that I use uh, looks hor- looks is, is the one that's kind of vertically mounted. I use it horizontally unmounted because I haven't had a place to uh, mount my French fry cutter in, in years. Um, 
but I like that. I like that style, the vertical mounted style with the with the thing in the front that looks like uh, what does it look like? It's hard to describe. It's got like a swoopy handle. You've seen my French mm-hmm. right, Sal? Mm-hmm. It's got a swoopy handle, and it's made of that's made of cast metal, and then the whole thing's bolted together with I think three eighths inch screws, and holds the uh, cutting plate in the front. And there's a, like a V V shaped um, uh, like kind of sliding chute. And then uh, a plunger on it, and the plunger actually engages the blades, right? And you need to replace the blades every once in a while because they get they get dull. But I use that thing, and I can slam through fifth. Uh, now see, I can slam through ten pounds of potatoes with it in like two and a half, three minutes. Like bang, 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 bang. Now the best, the best is to have it mounted on a wall. Right here's what you do. You have it mounted on a wall, and then you have your peeled potatoes in one container, like a hotel pan full of water, and then you have a hotel pan of water directly underneath the French fry cutter. And this is why the wall-mounted one is great. You have it directly underneath it, and then you load the potatoes and you cut them directly into the water. Bop, 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 and it stops you from getting a lot of discoloration, right, in between the cutting time, or if you're going to do a soak before you cook them, between the cutting time. And the and the and and doing the initial water blanch, assuming you do a water blanch, I'm assuming you do. Uh, and, you know, also on this, they make different size cutters, but I've never used a shoestring one. I, I use uh, three eighths uh, or slightly larger half inch cutting rings for mine. I have two plates for mine. Anyways, so uh, cutting into water like that is fantastic, and it's so neat. It means there's so little mess, right? So typical, my whole French fry production for the cutting standpoint is uh, put the put them in the sink. Fill the sink with water. Throw the potatoes in. Stir them around with my hands. Knock off all of the uh, loose dirt. You know, roll them around in there. Pull, pull the pull the plug. Get a hotel pan. Peel a uh, you know peel over a, a bowl uh, with some with uh, some running water. Rinse it off. Throw them into water. Now they're peeled, and you've made sure you've gotten all of the the reason to peel your fries. By the way, two reasons. I know it's nutritionally a bad idea to peel fries. Do you peel your stuff before you make fries? You don't like fries. Forget you. Do you like baked potatoes? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I like the taste of the skin. Right, okay. but uh, when you're doing French fries, the skin kind of never gets as crunchy as the rest of the stuff. I mean, I like I like them jacketed fries, but meh. I like potato skins that have been cooked super crunchy. And the other problem is is that potatoes. I don't know about the potatoes you guys get, but the potatoes I get potatoes. The potatoes that I get always have some uh, like some bad spots underneath that you can't see. And commercially, they, what they do is they spray potatoes with high pressure water, and it eats away all the soft parts. Uh, but I hate getting those. So when you peel them, you can see them. Jack, what's your feeling? Skin on or skin off? Your skin throat? on. Ah, oh, man. Sorry. Jesus. Uh, I, but why? Because you like the taste of the skins? You know they're not as crunchy. You realize they're not as crunchy. And yeah. that's okay. You're okay with yeah, that. Yeah, I like the taste. Yeah? Yeah. Taste, Pro- prove me wrong. The taste. The taste. No, I understand why you did it. By the way, I'm doing today's show in chaps. 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 Yay. I'm wearing cow chaps. I'm going to steal these suckers, Jack. Yeah, I think you should. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, you take the potatoes and you uh, now you have them in water in a hotel pan, and they're not turning to crap. They're not turning anything because they're in water, and it's getting the last. It's getting the starch off the outside, and it's getting the last of the dirt off. It's sinking to the bottom. Then your next hotel pan, bat 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 bat, cut them right into it, and you get going that way. Otherwise, it gets messy and things get everywhere, and it's a pain in the butt. That's the best way to do it. So I would go with the one that's meant to be mounted uh, vertically. If you cannot mount it. For some reason, like you don't have the space, I still use that style. But you have to develop a certain uh, a, there's a certain skill to using that thing uh, when it's not mounted because it's a pain in the butt. It, it involves like holding the handle and then holding the base in such a way that you don't crimp yourself and jerking forward and back at the same time and pounding the potatoes out. And I've gotten so used to it that it doesn't really slow me down to not have it mounted. But you know, I'm hoping to mount it in my new my new joint. I haven't mounted it yet. Still, it's still in the drawer, but I love it. I love cutting French fries, and I love French fries. You know what's nice? Of all the things, biscuits and whatnot, French fries might be the weirdest thing that you don't like. You know? It's true. Uh, I already answered Paul's question on which curious cook one to buy, right? Yep. All right. Let's see whether I – well, actually, I'm about to get kicked off the – Yeah. Hey, before we close the show, I want to put an open call out for another theme song. Oh, yeah. I think it's oh. that time. Yeah. All right. It's been a while. Uh, did I answer last week Rodney's question on coconut flour or not? I don't think so. Do I have time or not? Not really. Oh, man. Unless you can do it in two minutes. All right, I'm going to do it in two minutes. Rodney, Rodney, here you go. This is Rodney from Amsterdam, the Netherlands. In a low-carb period of my life, I purchased a bunch of coconut flour. It's 
It's not really flour, and I'm glad you're done with your low-carb period. I've been trying for a while to make crepes with it, but I've not succeeded so far. Crepe batter with 50% wheat flour and 50% coconut flour works, but anything over that fails. The coconut flour simply can't hold together, and I'm unable to even flip it without tearing the crepe. I'd like to make crepes with just the coconut flour. The composition of the coconut flour is as follows. And then you give me the moisture 3.6, ash 3.1, fat 10.9, protein 12.1, and then the balance uh, carbs. So it contains almost no gluten and almost no starch, plus it absorbs very large amounts of water. My theory is that the carbohydrate or protein network cannot be formed because there's too little starch and no gluten at all. So I've tried adding pure gluten, xanthan gum, and more eggs. Not all at the same time, but to no avail. Do you have any theories? Thanks a lot. Uh, yeah, coconut flour doesn't work the same way uh, normal coconut flour does. Coconut does. I would, if you want to cook with coconut flours, uh, there's a bunch of books available specifically for coconut flour. I don't own them, but you can check out Cooking with Coconut Flour, a delicious low-carb gluten-free alternative to wheat, a paperback by Bruce Fife that you can get on the Amazon. And he's like the he's the head of like the Coconut Institute. He does everything with coconut. But I looked up a bunch of – and you look on Rob's uh, – Bob's Red Mill? What's it called? You know what I'm talking about. Bob's Red Mill. Uh, he has a bunch of coconut flour recipes. Uh, and a video on coconut flour recipe. But having looked up a bunch of them on the thing, stuff just doesn't hold together. So they recommend normally only subbing in about 20% uh, to a normal recipe. If you want to go ahead and use only coconut flour, what they're fundamentally doing is making things that are eggs. It's just eggs. It's like set egg loaves. And the coconut flour is just there to make it not taste like eggs and to give it the feeling that it's made like a normal baked good. So if you want to do crepes, or a crepe-style thing, what I would do is this. I would whip up egg whites into a meringue, fold the coconut flour into it, and then if you, or, and then if you need to, or maybe do this. If you want it a little bit denser, I would uh, mix the egg yolks in with the coconut flour, whip the egg whites to soft peaks, stir them in quickly, and then pour them out uh, and bake them like that and see if it works. Because everything that I've read relies on ridiculous amounts of eggs. Cooking issues! <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.